Welcome to the teaching ministry at Crothers Creek Community Church. Good morning, C4 Church. My name is Dave Adams, and I'm one of the pastors here on staff at C4, and a huge welcome to those who are going to be watching and listening online throughout the week. Do you have a favorite preacher? Like, is, is there someone that you love to listen to? You know, if you have the opportunity while you're driving in the car that, that, that this is the person that you're going to turn on and, and you're going to listen to them. Mine's, uh, mine's John Thompson. Ever heard of him, anyone? No, just kidding. Totally kidding. Seriously. Um, my, one of my favorite pe- preachers is Chuck Swindoll. I, how many people love Chuck Swindoll? I love, yeah, great. So I love listening to Chuck Swindoll. I mean, there, there's just something about him. I, I wish I had that rich voice. I mean, Chuck, I know he isn't tall, but on the radio, he sounds tall. And I want to sound tall, you know? I mean, anyways, that's a whole other issue. But, um, um, but you know what? I, I, it's not just because of Chuck Swindoll's passion that I love him. And if you ever listen to him, he has such passion in his voice when he talks. And it's not just because of that unbelievable belly laugh that Chuck Swindoll has. And if you ever hear him, if he just kind of lets loose while he's preaching, he has this laugh that comes from deep down inside his gut and just kind of booms out there. And, it's, and it just makes you want to laugh. And it's not just because of the tremendous insights into God's Word that Chuck Swindoll has, because he does have great insights. And every time I listen to him, I learn something new about the Scripture, about Jesus. But those aren't the main reasons why I love listening to Chuck Swindoll. i got to be honest, the main reason why I love listening to Chuck Swindoll is because of those killer illustrations that he has. Like, you know what I'm talking about? Chuck Swindoll has these illustrations. I don't know where the guy gets them from, but his illustrations are incredible. The illustrations that he, that he uses are just perfect for the moment. The, he's going along in his message, and he's teaching from the Scripture, and he's weaving a story together, and he's got you because of all of the other gifts and abilities he has, and then he just kind of seals the deal. He just kind of clinches the whole thing because he throws out this killer illustration that just, you know, just knocks you dead. I remember years ago when, when I was in the business world, uh, my commute lasted just over half an hour, and it was just perfect timing to get a half hour's worth of Chuck in the morning. And so I would listen to him on my way there. But the, the only downside about listening to Chuck on the way there was I'd be driving along the QEW, and Chuck would have one of these great you know, illustrations that he'd throw out there, and you'd be like driving along, and be just taking the glasses off and kind of wiping the tears away and steering with your knee, you know, you're doing that kind of, how many of you have done that, right? Okay, so you've done that kind of stuff. Or, you know, you're going along, and the guy just says something, then he gives an illustration, and it just cuts you, you know, right to the heart, and you're like, wow, i got to pull over and write this down. This is before the days where you could actually just text it and drive with your knee, which we do not encourage. Me and Oprah do not encourage that at all, okay? So I just want to make that clear. The great British preacher Charles Spurgeon described a sermon as a house in which the windows of illustration allow light into every room in the house. I think Chuck Swindoll understands this. That's why his illustrations are so great. Well, last week, Pastor John finished Romans chapter 3 in our study, Back to Basics, going through the book of Romans, and he left us with Paul's teaching that all of us, whether we're Jew or non-Jew, that all of us are recipients of the righteousness of God that comes through faith in God alone. 
Now, to illustrate uh, this concept of righteousness that comes through faith, the Apostle Paul takes all of Romans chapter 4, which is my text for this morning, and he just makes Romans chapter 4 a complete illustration, a Chuck Swindoll-worthy illustration to tell us that what he's been talking about in the first three chapters already, he now wants to illustrate in a way that people can understand it, in a way that we can get it. And so he says to his predominantly Jewish audience, look, I want to focus in in chapter 4, and I want to illustrate everything that I've been talking about thus far by looking at the life of Abraham. Abraham, in Romans chapter 4, is the Apostle Paul's killer illustration. Now, Paul is writing to a predominantly Jewish audience in Rome. Yes, they've come to faith in Jesus Christ as their Messiah, but they've come out of a Jewish background. And as Jews, they would identify with Abraham uh, as both their biological and their spiritual forefather. And Paul takes an entire chapter, all of Romans chapter 4, to illustrate from the life of Abraham that what he's taught in the first three chapters of Romans already is nothing new, that God has always justified people by his grace through their faith in him. He has one singular purpose. Let's look at the life of Abraham and the stuff that I've been teaching already. I want to reinforce it with an illustration that you as Jewish people would all get. Now, that's where we run into our first little bit of a problem this morning, right? Because most of us here this morning are not Jews. Maybe we're not as familiar with the life of Abraham as we should be. We're certainly not as familiar with the life of Abraham that the Jews of Paul's day would be. And so I need to take a little bit of time before diving into the passage to do just a really quick overview of the life of Abraham. Because if I don't take the time to do this overview of the life of Abraham, then you're really not going to understand the punch to Paul's illustration. You're not going to get it the way Paul wants you to get it in Romans chapter 4 if we don't understand who Abraham is, and kind of what he's all about. Now I'm just going to touch down fairly quickly because the life of Abraham is a, a long subject. and It would take us a lot of time to study through it. But I want to touch down in a few of the key chapters in Genesis. So let's look at the life of Abraham. The life of Abraham is predominantly found in Genesis chapter 12 through just after Genesis chapter 22. Let me highlight a couple of the key points in Abraham's life so that we can understand this illustration that Paul is giving us today. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, we have what people call the call of Abraham. It's really where God comes to a man called Abraham who lives in a place called Ur of the Chaldeans. Uh, it'd be modern-day Iraq. And he comes to this man, and he gives this man an invitation he comes to Abraham and he says, look, Abraham, I want, to, I want you to leave your family. I want you to leave your homeland. I want, to, I want you to leave everything that you have. And I want you to come to a place that sometime later I'm going to show you. And so this invitation comes. And this is called the call of Abraham in Genesis 12. And God says to him, if you come, I am going to make you the father of a great nation. Now, we need to understand that when God issues this call to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham is married to his wife, Sarah. They have no children, and Abraham is 75 years old. We just need to understand that right up front. The next time that we need to kind of touch down on the life of Abraham is in Genesis chapter 15. And in Genesis chapter 15, God approaches Abraham, 
And this time he comes to Abraham to formalize a covenant agreement with him. You see, Abraham has believed that God is who he said he is, and, God, and Abraham has responded to the invitation from God, and he has left his family, and he's left his homeland, and he's gone out on a journey. Now, it's been a bit of an arduous, arduous journey so far, and you need to read the details of that yourself. But in Genesis chapter 15, God comes to Abraham and he says, okay, I... I I see that you have obeyed me. Now I want to formalize our agreement together. I want to enter into a covenant with you. And so he says to Abraham, I want to do a number of things for you, Abraham. So he takes Abraham outside and he says, look up at the stars in the sky. And so Abraham goes out into the night sky where there is no light pollution like there is around here. And he looks up and he sees a myriad of stars. And God says, I am going to make your descendants like the stars of the sky. They will be so numerous that no one can ever count them. And in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6, we have this key critical verse for Romans chapter 4 that we just need to understand. In Genesis 15, 6, it says this, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God. Abraham's response to what God has offered him and to the invitation of God is that Abraham believes that God is who he says he is, and Abraham responded in faith to God, and he believes that God is exactly who he said and that he's able to do what he has promised to do. And so Abraham believes him. Then in Genesis chapter 16, we see that Abraham and his wife Sarah who, this is a number of years later, are still childless, and so they decide that God's divine plan needs a little human intervention. Ever been there? So they agree that since Sarah can't have children, and that she's already into her 80s, that Abraham should have a son with their Egyptian maid named Hagar. Now, Hagar eventually gives birth to a son whom they call Ishmael. Then in Genesis chapter 17, God comes to Abraham again, and he renews his covenant with him. He reminds Abraham of all of the things that God has promised to Abraham, that he's going to bless him, that he's going to make him the father of a great nation, that he's going to bless all of the nations of the earth through Abraham and through Abraham's offspring particularly. And God says, look, I want to renew this covenant with you. And I want to let you know that Ishmael is not going to be the fulfillment of this, but I, I want to give you a sign. I want to give you an outward sign that is a reminder for you and all generations to follow you of this covenant agreement that I have made with you. And God institutes as a sign of this, as an outward sign, the covenant or the agreement of circumcision. All male descendants from Abraham were to be circumcised as an outward sign of the agreement and the covenant that God has made with, a with Abraham. And this outward sign is a sign that shows the inward response that Abraham has already made when it says that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Well, then in Genesis chapter 21, we have the birth of Isaac. And then in Genesis chapter 22, we have the final chapter of our story of the life of Abraham that we're going to look at. Isaac now is presumably somewhere in between about 13 and 18 years old. And God says to Abraham in the final test to see if Abraham's still in love with God and still believes God, he says, I want you to take your son, your only son whom you love, and I want you to sacrifice him to me on an altar. 
And once again, Abraham completely and implicitly trusts God. And he takes his son, his only son, whom he loves, and he places him on an altar after, after he has prepared it and put all the wood around it. And right up until, I believe, I mean, the scripture doesn't say this, but Abraham is so convinced that he's going to do it, that, that as Abraham lifts the knife to bring it down in his son, suddenly an angel says, no, stop. Now I know. Now I know that you truly, truly believe. And so God provides a substitute in the form of a ram, and they sacrifice that. Now, you need to know all of that stuff as we even come to Romans chapter 4. Because not knowing all of that doesn't, doesn't help us in Romans 4. The illustration that Paul is using in Romans 4 just doesn't make sense. So I want to go into now Romans chapter 4, and I want to share with you how each one of us can obtain and understand a right standing with God by seeing that Paul dispels four common myths about how Abraham was declared righteous in God's sight that are, that are things that people hold on to today to try, and, to try and get themselves into a right standing with God. And Paul points to these and he said, these are just myths. These are not the real deal. If we look at the life of Abraham, we see that there's only one way for people to get in a right standing with God, and there are not multiple ways. And so Paul dispels these myths. And let's just talk about them for a few minutes. The first one is this. The first myth is this, that righteousness comes from doing good works. Paul wants to make it clear right off the bat in chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, that it's not through the good things that you and I do. It's not somehow by just running around and doing a lot of good charitable activities and doing all kinds of good things for people that we obtain a right relationship with God. He says this in the scripture. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Paul says, look, let's take a look at our ancestral and our faith hero, Abraham, the one that the Jews would have naturally gone to. And they said, hey, Abraham, how did he get a right standing before God? Abraham did all kinds of good works in his uh, in his good works, he did them with his family. You remember the whole story about Lot, how, how Abraham was so gracious and so generous, and how Abraham blessed so many people. But Paul is trying to say, look, if you're thinking that Abraham's good works were the things that saved him, they weren't. They weren't. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. See, Paul is quoting Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6, which is so pivotal to the Jewish nation, the covenant agreement between God and Abraham. And Paul is using an accounting term here. I think that's why Pastor John had me preach this morning, because it was an accounting term that we'd get to use. But it is an accounting term that Paul uses. Paul is trying to say that over the course of a person's life, over the course of Abraham's life, and over the course of my life and your life, that we have this giant account up there, like a giant visa account. And all of the stuff that we do that is wrong in our lives, all of the sin that we commit, all of the things that we do that go against the moral code and the nature of God, they all get debited to our account. So when you look at your visa at the end of the month, there's all these debits that go through it. But Paul is saying that when Moses believed God, God entered into the ledger, into, Paul, into Abraham's visa account, a giant credit 
that in essence stamped the account and it said paid in full. That, that's what it means that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He was declared righteous by God through his faith and his belief in him. Paul wants to drive the point home further so that there's no misunderstandings. In verses 4 and 5, he says this, Now when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. What Paul is trying to say to us here is that righteousness is not like wages that God owes us because of our good works. You see, if we got righteousness through good works, then we would actually earn on our own our righteousness. But you can't earn a right standing before God. How on earth do you ever overcome all of the sin that all of us commit? So it's not like wages so that God is not obligated. Now Paul really wants to make sure that they get it. So he pulls out another ace that he has in his illustrations. And he uses King David. Now, if Abraham is the father of the Jewish nation that everybody reveres and looks back to as the, the forefather of them all, when you came to talk about the kings of Israel, I mean, sure, there was Saul, and sure, there were all Solomon, and the, you know, Rehoboam, and Jeroboam, and there were all kinds of people. But David, oh, David. David was the king that everybody loved. The one who was a man after God's heart. He's the most revered king of all of Israel. And Paul quotes Psalm 32. See, after David had committed adultery, this most revered, this, this, this king that everybody has only good thoughts about, after he committed adultery and then tried to cover it up by murdering the woman's husband, he gets caught. Paul says in verses 6 to 8 of Romans 4, David says the same things when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. And then he quotes Psalm 32. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord never counts against him. Same language, same term that David uses. David says, look, in my debit I have murder and adultery, just to name two. But God put a credit in my account because I believe God. And there's an enormous credit that has been put into my account that I could never pay off myself. So Paul says to his first century readers and to you and me today, if you think that you can gain a right standing before God, if you think that you can reverse your sin-induced guilty verdict by your good works, by the good things that you do, if you think somehow that you can earn your salvation, then you're dead wrong. The second myth that Paul wants to now dispel is this, that righteousness comes by being religious in verses 9 through 12. For any Jew to ever be part of the faith community and to, be, to obtain a righteousness from God, they would have to be circumcised. That's what the law says. And the Jews pointed back to Genesis chapter 17 as the source of this when God came to Abraham and he said, you need to be circumcised and every male Jew after you needs to be circumcised. And for the Jewish people, this had become their religious activity, the outward sign of what was going on in their faith. But God wants to make it clear that it always was just an outward sign. 
And Paul knows that this is what a lot of people were basing their salvation on. They were basing their salvation on just the outward signs. They were basing their salvation on nothing more than religion. And so he says this to him in verses 9 through 12. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We've been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but it was before. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised, in order that righteousness might be credited to them also. And he is also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith of our father Abraham that he had before he was circumcised. Look, Paul, I mean, you know, Paul's a master rabbi. He loves to weave arguments and questions. But look, he's trying to just say two basic things here in this section. First, Abraham already believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness long before circumcision ever came about. The faith came first, then the outward sign followed it and came after it. And the order here is vitally important, and that's what Paul is trying to point out here. It is faith first and then the sign afterwards. The second thing that Paul is really trying to point out here is that that because a person was a person of faith, because Abraham faith had faith in God and he was circumcised, that that faith is open to all, that Abraham is the father of all people, not just because of circumcision, but because of belief in God. That it's belief in God, it is sharing in the faith of Abraham that is really what counts. And throughout the centuries, after Abraham, God's covenant people placed greater and greater emphasis on the outward symbol of circumcision and virtually forgot the internal spiritual significance of what this outward sign pointed to. It was always meant to be about their faith in God and the righteousness that God gives them because of that faith. And I think we're no different today. Many people don't get what's behind the religious activity that we engage in. Child dedication, baptism, communion, worship, serving, giving, and the list goes on and on. If we ever lose sight of what that activity points toward, we're in danger of looking to religion for our salvation and not to God for our salvation. We do all of those things because we already have a faith relationship with God. We do all of those things in response to the salvation that God has already given us, and the order is vitally important to us. We can never look, we can never look just to the sign for our hope. Our hope is found in a person, a person of God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Well, the third myth that Paul wants to dispel is this, that righteousness comes through keeping the law in verses 13 to 17. The Jews loved the law of God. It was God's special revelation to them as his chosen people. 
The Jews obsessed about the law. They talked over the law. They argued about the law. They put forth different interpretations and different applications all surrounding the law of God. Every Jew gloried in the law of God. So Paul now turns his attention to Abraham and his relationship to the law of God. Verses 13 through 15. It was not through law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be the heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who live by law are heirs, faith has no value and the promise is worthless. Because law brings wrath, and where there is no law, there is no transgression. Paul is asking his readers here to think about it for a minute, to think that Abraham lived over 400 years before God ever gave the law through Moses. So Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness before the law ever existed in the hands of the people. Paul also wants to remind his readers again as he's already done in Romans, that the purpose behind the law was to show people that no one could ever live up to the expectations of God, that no one could ever please God fully by trying to keep all of the laws of God. The law was always meant to drive us and to push us towards the grace of God and the mercy of God. We were never meant to be people who tried to keep every little piece of the law because no one can do it. Instead, we were supposed to look at the law and see that the law shows us that we are guilty and that we already stand condemned under sin, as we've seen in the first three chapters already. James, the half-brother of Jesus, said this as a reminder to the people that he pastored. In James chapter 2 and verse 10, he says this, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. The message is this, that God always wanted us to understand from the law that we can't keep it and that we're to come to him by faith and believe in the righteousness that he gives to us, that he credits to us if we will just believe that he is exactly who he said he is. It's always about faith. Well, Paul goes on in verses 16 and 17, and he says, Therefore the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all of Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God, in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. You and I are the offspring of Abraham, not through circumcision, not through keeping of the law, but if we have come to God by faith in Jesus Christ, then you and I are offspring of Abraham. That is what God is trying to point out to us. That is what Paul is arguing for here, that it is not about a national heritage It's not about the family that you grew up in. It's not about the denomination that is stamped over you. See, when I was really little, before I ever had a chance to do anything about it, my mom and dad dressed me in what my boys like to call this little white dress. And they took me when I was very, very young, and they had a priest sprinkle some water over me and say some things. But there was a time later in my life 
that I understood fully that religion was never going to cut it before an almighty God. That no religious activity in and of itself had the power to set me free and to save me. That it was only through faith in God that I could gain a right standing before God. Well, the last myth that Paul wants to spell is this. That righteousness is not a blind leap in the dark. Throughout the years, people have said that faith is nothing more than this. That those who mock and scorn men and women of faith say, oh, all of you Christians, like, it's just a crutch. You're, you are just, you're just making this blind leap into the dark, and you're just kind of hoping beyond all hope that somehow you hope that this stuff is right. It's not a blind leap in the dark. Paul wants to make this very clear. In verses 18 to 21, he says this, Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so your offspring shall be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. From a human standpoint, there was no hope that Abraham and Sarah would ever have children, that God would ever fulfill this promise that he had made to Abraham, that he would be the father of a great, great nation. Abraham was 100 years old, and for Sarah, menopause was just a distant memory. In fact, I probably think they weren't even doing it anymore. I'm just saying. <laughs> if some of you older folks want to come and argue with me afterwards. <laughs> Anyways, Abraham. <laughs> so Abraham didn't ignore this evidence. Like Abraham didn't close a blind eye to this stuff. He was well aware of it. But he didn't let his circumstances weaken his faith. You see, his eyes weren't on his circumstances. His eyes were on God, the God who can give life, the God who can create something out of nothing. This is where Abraham's hope, and this is whom Abraham's faith was in, not in the circumstances around about him, but in the God who creates stuff out of sheer nothingness. And this is why it was credited to him as righteousness. It's not a blind leap in the dark. Abraham is believing in the God who has approached him and who has revealed himself to him. What I love about Abraham and Sarah is that they're human, just like you and me. You remember back in Genesis chapter 17 that Abraham and Sarah laughed when God reminded them that they would have a child. Like you and me, Abraham and Sarah's faith was really strong at times, and then at other times, it was just really, really weak. But what Paul is saying here in this passage is that overall, they kept the faith, even in the face of insurmountable odds. They still had faith in God, not their circumstances. You know, as I studied this passage this week, I wondered how many of us are laughing. Not, not the belly laugh like at a good joke, not a laugh of joy at a real blessing that's come into your life. 
but maybe a laugh like Abraham's, a scoffer's laugh. How do you react when you hear that we are praying for revival here at C4? That every Wednesday night, there's a group of us who come here and who fall down before God and say, oh God, please do not pass us by. Please, God, come and stir my cold heart and the hearts across all of this community of faith and, God, revive us again that your people might rejoice in you again. Oh, happy day, happy day. Now, come on! What kind of a laugh do we have when we hear that we are reaching out to 10,000 people? Insurmountable odds? Oh, I'll give you that. But where does our faith lie? And in whom do we put our trust? Not a pastor, not a board, not finances, but in God the Almighty. That's where we put our faith, and that's where we put our trust. Faith in God is not a blind leap in the dark, friends. Faith in God is trusting God and doing what he's asked us to do. Well, Paul closes out this way, and I'll close out this way too, in verses 22 to 25. It's not about these four myths. It's not, it's not about works. It's not about religiosity. You know, it's, it's not about all of those things. It's not about the law. It's about trust and faith in God. He says this in verses 22 to 25. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were not written for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. I love verse 25. A literal reading of verse 25 could be this way. Jesus had to die because of our sins, but he was resurrected to accomplish our justification. Paul's appeal to those in Rome and to you and me is this, that we have the same reaction as Abraham, our spiritual forefather. Faith alone in God. Faith alone. So what are we to do with Romans chapter 4? What am I supposed to do with Romans chapter 4? What are you supposed to do with it? Well, studying the passage this week and preparing the message, let me just finish with two very quick reactions that I personally had that I'll share as my testimony to you as you try to sort through Romans 4. The first one is this, amazement. It's my first reaction, amazement. I was talking with Pastor John during the week, and I was just saying to him, we were just bantering some questions about the passage back and forth, and I said to him, why did God choose Abraham? Like, why did God come to Abraham, this guy who lived in Ur of the Chaldeans, and why did God choose him? We know it wasn't because of works. We know it wasn't because of the law. You know, we know it wasn't because of circumcision, right? Why did God choose him? And so I looked at the scripture, and I searched the scripture. Do you know why God chose Abraham? Because he did. The scripture doesn't tell us why he chose Abraham. It doesn't tell us why God came to him. He just did. And I thought, well, that's really kind of strange, right? It doesn't answer questions. Inquiring minds need to know. And, and we don't. But then I think God hammered the point home for me. 
So why did God choose a 12-year-old boy living in Northern Ireland with a filthy mouth, with a non-Christian family who didn't give a rip about Jesus? I don't know. But he did. And I am so thankful. I am so grateful that he did. Because if God had never come, then I would not be free And if God had never offered me his wonderful salvation, then I'd be lost and going to a Christless eternity. But thank you, Jesus, that you came to me and to many of you here. And we don't know why. We don't fully grasp why. But he did. And I am filled with wonder and amazement. Grace isn't grace unless it's amazing grace. And God approaches me and he approaches you just like he approaches Abraham. And he issues a call to each one of us. There's an invitation to me and there's an invitation to you to believe that he is who he said he is and he's the God who keeps his promises and keeps his word forever. So that was my first reaction. It's the first thing that I do with Romans chapter four. I'm absolutely astounded and amazed The second one is this. It's just thankfulness. I mean, Pastor John said this to us a number of times as we've gone through Romans. My response to all that God has done is just simply to say thank you. Like it was all about God. God took all of the initiative in this thing, not me. I wasn't looking for God. I wasn't searching for God. I was a 12-year-old young guy who went to a scripture union weekend because there was going to be cute girls there. That's the truth. Junior high, remember it? But while I was doing that, God was seeking me. And someone shared with me for the first time that I can remember at that retreat, that Jesus loves me and that he died for me. And I will be forever grateful. I will be forever thankful. And it's why I have come to the place in my life and why I I encourage you, my brothers and sisters, we all need to come to the place in our lives, and it's a journey, it's, it's, it's a lifelong journey, but we need to come to the place where we go, what do I give God in response to what he has done for me? What can I possibly offer him back? And it's just everything. It's just everything. Here's my life, God. Here's everything I am. Here's everything that I have. And and it's not that I'm trying to pay you back somehow because I know I could never do that. But God, this is my fitting response to all that you have done for me. I am so grateful. I am so thankful. Are we a thankful people? If we're a thankful people, let's let it reflect in our worship in our service, in our giving, in our witnessing, in every facet of our lives, let's let our thankfulness shine through like never before. Let's pray together as Dan and the team are going to lead us. Lord, um, you know my heart, and uh, God, these words are true. Thank you so much for your amazing grace. Thank you for what you've done for me and for many people in this room And God, I pray for my friends who are still seeking, who have not yet come to that place. Would you flood their hearts with your amazing offer of salvation and give them the courage to be like Abraham just to believe you, God. And for those of us who have been on the journey for 
for a while. Help us to never lose sight of what it's all about. Continue to lead us and guide us in what we should do in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for being with us today. If you want to know more about our church or give financially, go to our website at www.crotherscreek.ca.